guys, good morning. Good to see you today. Um, there, there's a, a passage I want to share with you today. It's been one that's been very formative in my own life, one that, that, that I'm really wrestling with how to take you through the fullness of today. So just beg some of your patience as we, we navigate this very strange, contrarian teaching of Jesus that I want to show you momentarily. But to make that make sense, I need to couch it first. Now, central to the Christian understanding of life and God and, and humanity's interaction with him are two basic tenets, two, two what I would call foundational, rock-solid, bottom-core beliefs. The first is this, that God is a forgiving God. That God's grace is so abundant, that God is so disposed towards mercy, that no matter what we can do, it can be forgiven. So make your mental list. What do you bring in here today? What's your junk? What's your, what's your wounds? What's the trail of tears that you've left? Who are the people that you've hurt and destroyed? central to the Christian understanding of God and life and the universe is that God is merciful. And no matter what that list is, God's grace is big enough. But you don't know what I did. Yeah, I know. But God does. And his mercy is so big, so great, and so plentiful that no matter what it is in him, forgiveness. I like how Paul puts it. He says, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You want some grace in your life? Yeah? Sin. All right? I mean, you kind of follow the logic of it? You want, you want a little bit of grace? Sin a little bit. You want a lot of grace? Sin a lot. Right Now, Paul turned right around on the heels of that and go, no, 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 don't do that. That's kind of missing the point. But in the spirit of missing the point, don't miss the point. No matter how big, how bad, how much, God's grace, God's mercy, God can forgive. That's kind of rock-solid, ironclad, tenant principle number one. Here's number two, that that forgiveness is completely dependent on Christ. That, that, that grace isn't just free-floating, but it's attached, and it's found in Christ. It's found in what he did. It's found in what he accomplished. And it's accessed by coming to him. So this, this unlimited account, if I can use that kind of language of grace, that God has this unlimited amount of mercy and forgiveness that God wants to pour out on all people. He says, here's where you can find it. You find it in Christ. You find it in Jesus and what he did for you. And it's all rooted there. Which raises, I think, a very disturbing thought. What then happens if you cut yourself off from Christ? Now, 
McKenna read this passage earlier today. And it's talking about Jesus' ministry. He's out, and people are starting to see. It's, I mean, it's, it's clear before their eyes. It's clear that what he's doing is being done through God. The religious leaders recognize it. In fact, one named Nicodemus, one who sits on the, the highest ruling council of, of the Jews of the day, would go, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who is sent from God because no one could do the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. It was clear. It was clear to the man off the street. The person who just kind of approaches life in that, that everyday pragmatic kind of way going, look, look, I, I don't know who this guy is, but what he's doing, it's working. It's true. What he says happens, and it's amazing. It was clear to the demons. Even those who hated God would go, depart from us, son of man. We know that you're the son of God. And, and Jesus, I mean, you can watch, it's, it's funny, you can read this. He's always like, shut up. Seriously, it was so clear, which makes this passage so interesting because what it said is that Jesus is gathered with his disciples. They're in this house. People are pressing in because they're seeing it. They want it. They're tasting it. They're accessing it. They're getting it. But his family is like, he's out of his mind. And these same religious leaders, they're coming along and they don't like it. It doesn't say fully why they don't like it, but they don't like it and they don't like him. So what do you do when you don't like it and you don't like him? You turn it, right? You spin it. You cast the conversation in a different way to get people thinking along a different line. No, 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 this Jesus, you know what? It's, it's, the guy's possessed. The reason he has such authority over the demons is because, well, he's their boss, you know? I mean, it's by the prince of demons that he's casting them out. And then Jesus launches into this discussion. He says he gathers them together and starts to talk to them with parables about how this makes no sense, how a house divided against itself can't stand, right? When you have something that's meant to be united, which is infighting, the whole thing collapses. He goes, no, no, the reason this is happening, the reason these forces of evil are being defeated is not because I'm in league with them and they're just laying over. It's because the stronger one is here. And then he says what might be the most disturbing phrase in the Bible, a phrase, a teaching that is so contrarian, that seems to go so against the grain of everything the Bible, Jesus, Christian teaching roots itself in, that people are left not knowing how to deal with it. And here's what it says. I tell you the truth. All sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. Oh, I wish it ended right there. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Wait, I thought all sins were forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. What do you do with that? I mean, it's kind of just staring there in black and white. The language isn't confusing. What do you do with that? I thought where sin increased, grace increased all 
the more. And yet, contrary to everything he taught, contrary to everything the apostles expounded, there seems to be this floating, contrarian exception that there is, in fact, a sin that is unforgiven. And it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you about that today. I want to try to help you get a handle on what Jesus is getting at here. And I hope that in the process of doing this, it opens a door to something bigger than just how do I deal with a problem passage, but opens a door into something far bigger, far more common, and far more insipid that Jesus is getting at instead. Now, I want to show you a, uh, another teaching here this morning. It's, it's by a 16th century monk named Martin Luther. And Kim, if you would flash that up on the board for me really quick, I'd appreciate it. He's describing the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, it just simply says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Holy Christian Church, the community of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And he's kind of trying to break it down for people. What does it mean? Look at what he says. He says, I believe that I can't by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let it sit. Let it sit for a minute. He says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus as my Lord. Well, what do you mean I can't believe in him as my Lord? I do believe in him as my Lord. Obviously, I did it, so obviously I can. But the New Testament seems to take a different tack. It seems to look at what's going on from a different perspective. See, from my perspective, it seems that I can choose to believe something or not believe it. And as I interact with other people, it seems they can choose to believe something or not believe it. But the New Testament would say something different instead. It would say this, that whatever belief, whatever faith, whatever repentance, can I put it this way? Whatever inclination to seek God and his way, at some fundamental level, is Holy Spirit dependent. That if it wasn't for the Spirit of God churning in your life, you'd never believe. If it wasn't for the Spirit of God churning in life, you'd never repent. If it wasn't for the Spirit of God churning in your life, you would never choose to come towards God. Specifically, you would never choose to come towards Christ. You never choose to follow him in his way. The Holy Spirit's kind of like the forgotten of the trio, isn't he? You know, there's so much emphasis put on the Father and the Son, but central to the teaching of the New Testament is that God's Spirit is here, and it's on the prowl. It's on the move. How does Jesus put it? It's like the wind. Blowing where he pleases. You don't know where he comes from or where he goes, but so it is with the Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that takes hold of hearts to turn them to Jesus, to receive forgiveness that is found in him. But let me ask you the question. What happens 
if you cut yourself off from Christ, which could be another way of saying this, what happens if you cut off the Spirit? I want to show you a picture here today. And uh, that's not Walking it at all, but we're going to get to that. And backwards for over 50 minutes. Can you get that? Thanks. I want to show you this one here today. What you're looking at here is an artist's rendition of your blood flow, your arteries. All of us know that inside we have tubes, right? These tubes are these pipes, which we call arteries, are responsible for channeling the blood that is within us, the blood that gives us life, the blood that keeps us moving, the blood that keeps you alive, nourishing and feeding and oxygenating all the different parts of your body. And many of us know, if we remember back to anatomy classes or biology or whatever it might be, that if you cut off the blood long enough to a part of your body, what happens? It dies. You ever do the game? You take the rubber band, you're bored in school. You wrap it around your finger once, right? Nothing. You wrap it around your finger twice. Nothing. You wrap it around three, four, five, six times. Come on, you played this game, right? And the finger starts to turn an amazing shade of blue, doesn't it? Why? It's dying. Leave that rubber band on too long. And what happens? Sure and certain death. I don't mean your whole body, but to that of which the blood supply has been severed, gone. So it is with spirit. I want you to look at this diagram a different way. And I want you to look at those platelets and imagine them as though that is the Spirit of God on the move in your life. In you and through you. Affecting your mind, your will, your heart, your soul. Leading you, guiding you, connecting you to Christ in faith. And it's supposed to free flow. But just like our body, we can clog the tubes. Who here lives on a diet of Twinkies? <laughs> what happens if you do? Well, over time, blockages start to occur. Things come into our arteries that start to limit the blood flow. Now, we're still alive, to be sure. But less and less is getting through. Are you with me? And let this go long enough. And you can clog it completely. Effectively severing the blood's ability to get through. And doctors then start using very clinical terms like attack. To describe what happens to your heart. And left unabated, it's sure and certain death. Guys, the Holy Spirit is the same way. Central to what Jesus believes and central to what comes out of the New Testament is that the Spirit of God is on the move and we are utterly dependent upon him for connection to Christ, for forgiveness of sins, for the mercy of 
God. But cut off that spirit. And what happens? Sure and certain death. Cut off the blood and you die. Cut off the spirit. You die. From another point of view. And this clog that you see here is what the Bible calls sin. Now, I'd imagine that when I say the word sin, kind of our knee-jerk reaction, correct me if I'm wrong, but, I, but I'd imagine that kind of our knee-jerk reaction to that term is like we immediately start thinking of things that we were, were supposed to do and, and things that we're not supposed to do. It's like a list of rules, right? So sin is defined as like breaking the rules. God said, do this. So if I don't do this, it's a sin. God said, don't do this. So if I do this, it's a sin, Right? But the way that the Bible teaches about sin is, is something so much deeper than just the breaking of specific and individual rules. And something that the Bible teaches that's often overlooked is that sin has a cumulative, clogging effect. I want to show you another picture here today because this one's prettier. You've seen these in health classes before, right? What you're looking at is lungs. <sighs> it gives you spirit, life, breath. The lung on the left is healthy. At least that's what I'm told. The lung on the right is not. We've all seen the anti-smoking campaigns. Those of you who smoke here today, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not trying to pick on you. Well, I'm sorry in a number of ways, but you know, I'm not trying to pick on you. But, but, but the analogy works. What you see on the right is a smoker's lung. Now, here's the question I wonder. How long did it take for that smoker to go from left to Right? Now, I don't know this. I'm not a medical professional. But I'm inclined to believe that it wasn't one cigarette. And isn't that the danger? Because if one cigarette would move you from left to right, we would never touch the things. We'd treat it like arsenic. But you have one. I don't feel that much different. Have two. Doesn't seem to bother me. Have ten, twenty, a hundred, a thousand. It happens so gradually, doesn't it? We don't even realize the effect, but something is going on, isn't there? Unbeknownst to us, despite the fact we don't feel it, it's having a cumulative effect. And before you know it, when you're unaware, it leads to death. And isn't that the big problem of it? We don't know when. See, for those of us with a lousy diet, if we knew 
What final meal was going to push us over into a tax zone? We would never go there, right? But you don't know when, so you just have one more. You just have one more. You just cheat a little bit. Not really paying attention to the minuscule cumulative effect. If a smoker knew which cigarette was going to finally send them over the end into emphysemaville, they wouldn't go there. They would cut it off before. But no, it kind of just keeps leading us on, leaving us completely unaware of the cumulative effect. Guys, sin is the same way. The reason that the Bible speaks so strongly against this thing called sin isn't just because of the pain of the moment, as bad as that can be, to be sure. It is because of something more. It is because of the cumulative effect. Because the result of sin in your life is like the result of clogging an artery. Building up and building up and building up until someday when we least notice cuts off the spirit and severs the blood flow and leads us to sure and certain spiritual death. What is Jesus getting at when he says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men can be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. If I had time, I would tell you my story with this passage. The agony I had to live over the way I was convinced that I had done something that was never again going to be forgivable and how I had blasphemed him. No, I think Jesus is getting at something else instead. Because what he tells the Pharisees is not a judgment, but a warning. Guys, look what you're doing. Look at who you're denying. Look at what you're harboring. Look at the continued pattern you're insisting upon. Do not be unaware of its cumulative effect. Because continue unabated in sin. And it will stranglehold the spirit in your life, severing him off and leaving you separate from Christ, from grace and forgiveness, dead on the outside, apart from all that he so desperately wants to give. How does that old Good Friday hymn put it? You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. The New Testament has such a different approach to this thing that we, I think, handle so frivolously and so casually called sin. These things that we think aren't that big a deal. These things that we're like, eh, it's not hurting anyone. These things that we're like, well, it hasn't sunk the ship yet. No, hear God screaming out through the prophets, do not miss the cumulative effect. This is what the New Testament writers talk about. When they say things like this, I think of Timothy, where, where Paul warns him, he's like, do not grieve the spirit or quench the spirit's fire. 
I think of the way Paul writes to the Ephesians where he talks about how people have lost sensitivity and have become darkened in their thinking. I think of how Jesus talks about how we callous our hearts, cholesterol in them up, and insulating them from the move of the Spirit. All sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, but cut off that spirit and you've severed the pipeline to God's full redeeming grace. Build it up. Choke them out. It's what Jesus is warning the Pharisees of that day. Now, who here is afraid of heights? All right, me too. The rest of you, I don't understand who you are. <laughs> I want to show you specifically a video today. A video of the stupidest man who's ever lived. Good lights. Take a look. Blindfolded and backwards for over 50 minutes and 700 meters. Many would argue he should have quit sooner after this near miss. The stuntman picked himself up but complained of feeling dizzy. Nevertheless, he continued his walk until just 40 meters from the finish, disaster struck. Does that not like ultimately suck or what? Okay, honestly, those of you who are afraid of heights, right? The rest of you aren't going to get this. Your hands just start to sweat a little bit. What kind of idiot does that? Who walks a tightrope backwards, blindfolded, not knowing where it's going to drop off, not knowing where the footing's... Who... I can't even wrap my mind around it. That's what you do when you live with sin. You're walking a tightrope backwards. And there's warnings on the way. You know, it's not like it just... Bam, lightning bolt from God. No, no, it's nothing like that at all. The, the, the pictures and caricatures people make are so a million miles away. The Bible is filled with the pages of the prophets warning people, turn from the certain end of destruction toward which you're heading. But we keep walking backwards, thinking we can do it. We stumble, oh, you know, it sobers you up for a moment. Oh, no, no, but I got this. It is a path towards sure and certain destruction in the end. So true to this series, I want to then tell you and share with you steps you can take to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in your life. All right? How do you actually blaspheme him? as Jesus would seem to indicate. Well, here's one. 
Let sin continue in your life. Believe me, attaching some four-letter word to the Holy Spirit's name is not what I think Jesus is getting at here. Now, I don't advocate that behavior, but it's not what this is about. It's about something so much more common and insipid instead. Let sin continue in your life. Let it continue to have a cumulative effect. Let it go. Let it go. Unabated, unchecked, undealt with, unresolved, unrepented. Continue to harbor your favorites. Continue to tell yourself, I got this. Continue to believe in yourself that you're strong enough and able to handle whatever it sends your way. Let it continue, and I promise you, it will build up in the arteries of your soul. Quenching the spirit off in your life so you realize you don't even care that much anymore. Here's another. Try this. Reject what God is doing clearly before your eyes. It's what the Pharisees did. Stop paying attention to what he's telling you, to what he's warning you. Stop paying attention to his nudges and his prompts. Rationalize them. Kind of just, okay, but tuck him safely away. Do that enough, you'll dead and you won't even hear anymore, let alone care anymore. It's another sure and certain way. Here's another good one. Dig in. Practice stubbornness. You draw that line with God and you tell him where he can't cross. You say, this is my side. You don't enter over here. No, you keep yourself on that side of the line I've drawn because I ain't budging from where I stand right here. God will let you. He doesn't want it, but he'll let you. He absolutely will. Just some ways I've found to get at what Jesus was getting at in the passage I shared with you here. There's some of you in this room who are troubled, I think, over something you think you have done, wondering if it is an unforgivable sin. To that, all I can say is God has the message of the utmost grace and hope to you. A forgiveness that is unlimited for no matter what you've said or done. A forgiveness available to you. But to those of you here today who, like me, are so inclined to treat sin lightly, and to let it continued unchecked. Jesus has a warning for us here. A warning towards a sure and certain end towards which it heads. If left unchecked. And so he sends his spirit to call you back. But heed his words, don't sever them. Don't cut him off. Don't block him out.
as he seeks to move and flow and draw near. And that is what I think Jesus is getting at. That's what he means when he talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And may we just as a people and as a church just never be guilty of that. Never be guilty of that here. You know, last week, I shared a Bible passage with you. I'm going to pop it on the screen. From Ecclesiastes. If you were with us, the Koheleth, the teacher, the, the speaker through most of this forgotten Old Testament book. Warning of all the things we value so much and chase after so dearly that in the end are hevel, as he would put it. says this, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? Because God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything, hidden thing, good or evil. It's God's call to us as we walk the tightrope backwards. And what the Spirit does is draw us to repentance instead. Repentance.